you know, it's a, it's a niche way to get properties and it's cool. And another way we find deals is just having in-house acquisitions people and you're cutting the wholesaler out, you're cutting the realtor out. Um, although we love, you know, good realtors, good wholesalers to a lesser extent. But uh, if you can do that in-house, you have the access to the full amount of deal flow in the market, at least as many deals as your people can find you. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, real estate for busy pros. The show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Angad Guglani from Cooper Square Acquisitions. And today, we're learning about how he scaled to financial independence with real estate by using the Burr strategy, how he built his portfolio and how he built his business. He vertically integrated brought a lot of services in-house and is just, he's continuing to look forward. He's in his late 20s and he's accomplished so much with a lot more on the way. Very impressive to learn about his experience, how he did it, how he scaled up and also his mentality, how he thinks about building his portfolio, how he thinks about finding opportunity, which I really, to me, is the biggest lesson out of this interview is how he thinks about finding opportunity. But you may get something in addition to that. I bet you will. You're probably going to learn so much from this interview by listening to Angad Guglani with us here on the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you'd like to learn more, just go to investwithtaylor.com, schedule a call with me, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. It gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see your reviews. I get to read your reviews. I get to see that you're learning from the show. And I get to see that you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Angad Guglani, and we're learning about how he scaled his portfolio from nothing. He was a college student at the time, scaled his portfolio to 150 plus doors with more on the way. He's the sole owner. He didn't bring in any equity investors to build his portfolio. Very impressive stuff and what he has in the future. Big time success story with more on the way. Without any further ado, here we go. Angad, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. So we've been talking for a little while here. You have a fascinating, amazing background with everything you achieved up into your mid-20s, which is amazing. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about yourself and how you built your real estate portfolio? Sure, happy to. So, grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, kind of like sleepy Midwestern. People call it, I call it Midwest, people call it East Coast, but whatever. Nice town. And, you know, in high school, kind of learned that I really loved entrepreneurship, buying, selling things. The first thing I ever did was really buying and selling like watches. I figured out you could buy them cheaply on Craigslist and sell them for parts, like these are Rolexes and stuff. And I was like, time I was like, I don't know, in high school, I made like $30,000, $40,000 doing that. I'm like, wow. wow, this is pretty, this is pretty awesome. And uh, then I moved to New York City for undergrad. I went to NYU Business School there. And I just kind of saw an opportunity. A buddy of mine was a real estate agent. And then, you know, he told me, oh, I made $300,000 as a real estate agent. He was like 19 years old. I'm like, holy wow. shit, this is, pretty, this is pretty cool. So I got my real estate license. I did not make any money my first couple months because I realized 
you need connections, you need clients, you can meet inventory to buy, sell, rent. And I had none of that. So what I realized was, okay, all my friends from NYU are moving off campus to uh, rental apartments and they're all paying broker's fees, three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000. And these agents are only working a day or two for, the, for those commissions. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. So I branded myself as off-campus apartments NYC. That was the company. And then I hired like, you know, it took off. I, you know, I sat in the the office of like, I don't know, so, some someone from Student Life and they made them put my website link to their website to on the NYU website. I don't know if it's still up there, but and that that was how we got a lot of traffic and, and leads and stuff. And it soon was was drowning in business. So I hired some of my friends to get their real estate licenses and we'd run around each summer and rent apartments in New York. And this was like probably 2013, 2014, 2015 timeframe. And I was very fortunate to have found that opportunity at that age. And I was making really good money. I was making six figures a summer and living very cheaply. I almost had no rent and living in like a tiny little apartment that like shared with three people and whatever. So every penny I made, I basically saved up with the goal of buying real estate with that money. Looked around for opportunities right around New York City. Thank God did not find any because that ended up being kind of one of the peaks of the New York market. If you ever look at a chart of New York real estate, 2015 was kind of the peak. And a buddy of mine from undergrad uh, was from Philly and he's like, hey, you should look at Camden. Camden, you know, had a pretty tough reputation as one of the most dangerous cities in the country, but was undergoing kind of a renaissance because the government had kind of earmarked $3 billion to revitalize it. And, and uh, you know, real estate's a lagging indicator. The real estate market hadn't really ticked up yet at that point. So started out with one house, actually bought it with two of my friends. They were my initial partners, bought it for $32,000, put in 15000 and rented for thirteen seventy five a month to a Section 8 tenant. And funny story, she's still with, us, or nice. with me. I ended up buying the partners out the next year. And then it was all me and I had one house. And then the year after, basically that 2017, I bought, I think, five houses that year. So I had six houses. And this was all cash. Basically, you know, whatever money I'd saved up, about $300,000, I spent that all on these, on these properties. And then once they were leased up, I then, you know, finally convinced this community bank to, 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 to give me my first ever loan. And it was a refinance loan. I was able to pull out all the equity and plus some and, and took that. And uh, basically, I was off to the races. I would just buy properties, fix them up, rent them out and refi like the whole burst stuff everyone talks about. Wow. Started one, did five, then did 30 something. And then the year after that, did 70, some, 70 something purchases of units and and then now we own about 160 some residential units, a small little self storage facility, some small multifamily, and, and a bunch of tax liens. And I'm still the sole equity owner of the company. I never raised outside equity. And uh, we have about 25 employees in the team. So it's been a good, it's been a good run. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I'd like to dig into first, you know. The times were a little bit different back then. And I think that's something that folks are going to say when they're or maybe thinking to themselves that, hey, we find ourselves today in 2022. Do you think it's possible to recreate that type of success, particularly with the Aber type of strategy? And, you know, how, if so, what would you do if you had to kind of start over all again and, and try to do that today? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So the numbers are definitely a little tighter now. So what's key when you're doing Burr is really the most important number I've found to be the delta between what your basis is and what the property appraises for, right? That's the the key metric here. You want to maximize that basically value add that you create. And anyone can tell you this, the value add component 
that delta, that spread has been compressing, right? As the number of foreclosures and distressed properties get smaller and smaller, there's less of that that margin out there. That being said, you can always look at different product types. So what we're focused on now is actually like what I call them boutique multifamily. So like anywhere from like three to whatever, 20, 30, 40 units, whatever. Stuff that does not have, that's not big enough for an onsite manager. That's not big enough for Fannie Freddie debt where like there really isn't much of, there isn't that much competition, at least in my market, right? I'm sure around the country, you can find a different niche. Like, you know, you could, I, I feel like there's a ton of opportunity in office, like boutique office buildings, like small, like 10,000 square foot office building. And granted, you may have to buy it the first one, hard money, or maybe raise a little capital, but like, there's not a lot of competition in that. So why don't you try buying a 10,000 square foot office building and working your butt off to lease that up and then take it to a community bank and you refine that and do do that as your bird. It doesn't have to be a single family home or a duplex the way people have done in the past. There's always there's always different pockets of opportunity in the market. Granted, I will I will be honest, it was a lot easier when I started. I mean, the first couple houses I bought off auction.com and you know, it sounds sounds almost laughable now to be able to think that you could literally go on auction.com and find a good deal, but <laughs> yeah, it was the market. Well, times have changed, but I think you were if, if I can assume or try to read into it, I think your mentality, maybe the kind of the way you're you're formulated, the way you think about things is that you're going to find the opportunity. So even if you had to start over again today, you're still going to go after it with the same hustle because doing your watch business prior to to real estate, I'm sure was a big, a big hustle. It took a lot of work. And then being a realtor, you made six figures over the course of the summer. You know, there's no downplaying that. That definitely took a lot of hustle to make that kind of thing happen. And I think you'd probably do that again today. Now you hit a, a certain point where you decided to vertically integrate in your own portfolio. Can you define what that what that means as far as vertical vertical integration goes and also why you decided to vertically integrate? Certainly, yeah. So it was basically, I didn't have any W-2 employees until we hit a hundred doors. And that was, and that was, I was personally, to be honest, terrified of the concept of hiring someone on the <laughs> payroll because you feel responsible personally for that person's livelihood, their families, their kids, whatever. They, they're literally supporting themselves and off of the salary that you have agreed to pay them. So if there's a disruption in your business, you run out of cash. And we came very, I came very close to that many times over the years. You, you know, that's that's definitely scary to me. So I, I, I guess I waited a lot longer than most people do. So we had about 100 units. And, and at that time, I'd used a property management company. And they were doing all the construction management, all the leasing, all the property management. So indirectly, it was probably employing 20, 30, 40 people because we had all these contractors that were working for the property management company and maintenance techs and all that because we were doing a lot of construction, but had no one on the payroll person. And then and that was the head of construction. And then we slowly built out a construction team underneath him. And then six months later, we brought property management in-house and we brought maintenance in-house and acquisitions I always did myself. And now we've built an acquisitions team. So really we have construction, maintenance, property management, acquisitions. And then I guess you could say myself is kind of like the asset manager or capital allocator or whatever. And so we kind of do everything under one roof, which is pretty cool. You know, doing that, I thought initially when I did this about a year, two, about two years ago now, I thought we're going to save a fortune in, in, in cost, right? Cause instead of paying all these third parties, we're doing it in house. 
that actually turned out not to be the case. Hmm. I mean, granted, you could say a lot of that could be just all the inflation we've had. So maybe that's that's eaten away at the savings. But but even then, I, I think really what we gain by doing being vertically integrated is just ease of use and like everything kind of works together. It's not you have more control of your process. Now, all of our units for the first time ever, like all of our rehabs, they all look kind of the same. We use the same materials everywhere. And I know people a lot talk about that, but it's tough to do when you have all these different contractors and they're all going to different, I mean, they're generally going to Home Depot, but they're all picking different SKUs. And it's hard to just keep everyone in line when they're not your employees. But when you have kind of your own departments within your own company, you're able to kind of standardize things and actually have accountability in the organization versus when you're all third party, it's tough to keep people accountable. Totally, totally. Now I'd like to dig into how you expand now, as opposed to how you expanded earlier on when your portfolio was smaller. It sounds like you did a lot more of the Burr style before, whereas now you've got a more established portfolio and the market conditions are different. So have you changed the way in which you find deals, underwrite deals, and, and really look for value? Are you still doing like a Burr strategy or what are you doing now to really expand your portfolio or you expand your portfolio at all. Maybe you're deciding not to expand and just optimize what you already have. I don't know. What are you doing right now? Of course. So yes, still in expansion mode. Um trying to get about 250 units. And not because it like make but buying more units is that is that cool. It's just really the way I see it, like to have a vertically integrated company. Uh the goal is to have two two kind of people in each position. Therefore like it's good. I mean, there, if someone's sick, no one's going on vacation, like it's good to have two people in each kind of management position or in each department head, right? So, and to support that infrastructure, roughly 250 units is what it takes, roughly in our market, at least. Now, how we're, I still underwrite everything to a Burr model, meaning like if, if we have to keep equity in the deal, I really am not that interested. We're, there still has to be a heavy value add component. Um, I mean, granted, like maybe now if you have a little bit of equity in the deal, not a problem. But we're still going to try to to add significant value and be able to refinance all of the the cash we put in, or pretty darn near close to all of it. So still kind of keeping that formula. Now, how we're finding product? A few different strategies. One is taxing and investing. So I've been investing in taxings for about three years now. Uh, do not do it at the primary market where, like, you know, you'll see a lot of people talk about this on YouTube. Like, turn those, turn it off. Don't watch. <laughs> what we do is we actually, uh, it's kind of unique to our market, but we'll, we'll buy leads that have been sitting on the city's books for a while. And we work out deals with the city. They have it once a year. They have a special auction we'll buy those and then get access to inventory that way or work with taxing funds to get their REOs. It's a cool little niche that, you know, it's a, it's a niche way to get properties and it's cool. And another way we find deals is just having in-house acquisitions people and you're cutting the wholesaler out, you're cutting the realtor out. Um, although we love, you know, good realtors, good wholesalers to a lesser extent. But uh, if you can do that in-house, you have the access to the full amount of deal flow in the market, at least as many deals as your people can find you. So so when you buy a tax lien, I, I haven't done one of those deals myself, so I'm, you know, uh-huh. definitely vague on some of the finer details. But isn't there a specific amount of time that you have to wait until you're able to take possession of the property? Or there's some kind of That's correct, lag time. It's it's different in every state. So definitely look up your own state's rules. Uh, what we do in particular municipality, these are already old leads that have just been sitting on their books for a long time. And again, it's very market specific. So there's very few markets in the country where this will work. But then you, you, you buy those leads 
And then you're, re- you're really good to go for the foreclosure right away because these leads have already done the two years of, mm. of being active. And then uh, the foreclosure lease in New Jersey takes about a year. And then you get access to the property. So we bought like a package of 60, 70 liens last year, March. And now a handful each month of those are turning into actual properties after all the foreclosure proceedings are complete. So it's a cool way to get properties. But again, it's fleeting, right? It's not always like the dynamics are always changing. We were somewhat early to this. Now a lot of the other competing firms have picked up, picked up on this and they're doing the same thing. So you always have to continuously like, you know, I call it finding different rabbit holes and ways to find deals. <laughs> so how do you think about diversification in your own portfolio, scaling from approximately 150 doors to 250 doors? Sounds like you're focused in a fairly tight area or are you spread out? And also, you know, there's the area and there's also the property class. So how are you thinking about those things, diversification in terms of location and asset class in your portfolio? Certainly. So yeah, to be, to be frank, diversification is not something that, uh, we're on the path to achieve because we're just, we're trying to build vertical integration. So that's almost the exact opposite of diversification. Personally, how I hope to achieve diversification is actually what I want to do in the next couple of years. I would love nothing more than to really professionalize this company and, and put the leadership team in place so that it can run it without my day-to-day involvement and basically, uh, hire away, away my role. And then what I'd really like to do personally is, is, is purchase small businesses. And I figured that'd be a cool way to do it is you would have, you know, your small businesses or medium-sized businesses, that's one stream of income. And then you have real estate, it's the other stream of income. And it would be great to expand to another market. But to be honest, at this stage in the game, knowing, you know, how hard it is to achieve scale in a market, especially being where we are with the lack of deal flow, and it's tough to think of going to a new market and starting from scratch. I mean, if we have another 08-like event, for sure. You know, I'll drop everything I can do and then go to another market, try to build something similar like this, like mm-hmm. Cooper Square in another market. But until you have some sort of macro event like that, or you're able to maybe get lucky and buy one nice multifamily building or office building where you can immediately build scale off of one property, I think it's tough to just expand to a market and do the, the SFR single family rental or boutique multifamily strategy that we do here. Gotcha. Okay. So... You are 27. We talked about this uh, before we yeah. started recording, which is crazy young to have uh, you know done this many deals and, and good on you. What does your exit strategy look like? I mean, you probably are at a point or you're getting close to a point where you could go sit on a beach and you know drink margaritas all day, but you're not doing that. And you've got a long time to do that left in life if you really want to. Why not? And and what does the next, say, five to 10 years look like for you if you could create sure. it? Yeah, I mean, it was really like the when I started out doing the brokerage, I was basically doing real estate brokers up until the point we had, I had 100 units because I was needed the income from that to support this. And when I hit 100 units, I basically got to the point, I was like, wow, I could basically just live off the, the cash flow of this and just not work and just kind of hang out. And and it was it was it was terrible. I was like terrified. I was I got very like depressed and like for a couple of months, like, what do I do? Like, this is it. This is all I've been working for for the last, whatever, six, six years. The culmination was hitting this hundred unit goal. And then I realized like, you know, it's time to reset the goals. And, and, and did I want to get to a thousand units in this market? Not really, because I'd rather wait, you know, do it organically, wait for good deals to hit the market. And there's only so many deals you can expand to. If you're doing it the way I did it, which I never raised outside equity capital, right? 
if you're a fund or you're a sponsor or a GP, then it's a lot easier to scale because you're not really in, you're kind of in the capital management business and your job is to deliver a return for your investors. But if you're the sole investor, like I think your job, like my job really is to figure out the best times to be in and, and just take it slow and try to play for as long of a game as possible, stay in the game as long as possible. So not overly concentrating in one particular market at one, at one time. So what do I see the next five years as? Um, I, I basically am hoping in the next, you know, 12 to 15 months to, to set up the company so where I could, I could kind of uh, not be here day to day. And and then with that time and, and capital, I'll be able to take out of the business through, through brief eyes. I wanted to buy a small business or two small businesses and try to expand those because the cool thing about that strategy, it's called ETA, Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. And it's, 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 it's kind of nascent. It's not hugely popular, but it's popular. Um, um, actually finishing my MBA at, at Penn at Wharton nice. and a, a fair, uh, every year about 10, 10 people from Wharton and Harvard and Stanford and other schools will 10 people from each school will, will go out and raise money and buy a business. So I kind of want to be in that game and I would do it using my own capital and maybe it's a smaller business or whatever and use some sort of SBA loan to do it. But I think it's super exciting to test your skills because I've been in real estate for since I was 18 or 19. So about nine, 10 years now. So I would love to try to try another industry and see if the same principles of adding value and tightening operations can work in another industry. And the fun thing about that could be like in real estate, when you're buying a deal, you and your competition, everyone's underwriting to a similar set of numbers. You know, okay, I'm going to buy it for this price. We're going to renovate it for that price. And the rent is going to be this much. When you're buying a business, there's so much more strategy you can bring to the table. Maybe the existing owner didn't have a sales department to put a sales department in. Maybe there's an acquisition you could do to, 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 to make the business more efficient or tap a new set of customers. There's a lot more you can do to, to grow your net operating income other than just renovations. Wow. So how do you think about your own portfolio and also in the broader sense of you have your real estate portfolio and then you would have presumably your small business acquisitions Separate from that, how do you think about controlling risk so that you're not putting too many chips on the table, so to speak, with a small business acquisition and say cross-collateralizing and risking the real estate portfolio and getting distracted and you know, betting it all on black, if you will? That's that's a great question, Taylor. And 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 something I really haven't had haven't had to to face yet because I haven't made any small business acquisitions. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the best way to do that would probably be just not PG the loans, the debt on the on the small business. So the worst you can lose is the equity. But yeah, I mean, it's all going to come down to the deal structure that I'm able to find hopefully soon and, and really trying to write, like not PG the loan or subjugate it in a way where the real estate doesn't go down with the small business. But one thing that I think at least in the real estate side that I'm excited about is we do like workforce housing. Most of our portfolio is that. I mean, now we're having some somewhat more of like a luxury type rental product in some of the some of the towns that we're investing in but the majority of the portfolio is like workforce housing we have like by 10 percent of section eight so that's i think a very conservative business model because the supply is not expanding no one's building more of this stuff demand i think is pretty pretty stable because there's been a lot of job growth and a lot of income growth at the demographic that's renting these properties so i'm hoping you know this this you know, these, these macro trends continue and we have a stable cash flow from this business from Cooper Square. And then hopefully the business, uh, whatever small business acquisitions, that'll be more of a lumpy cash flow where you can go high or low or whatever, but at least you have one steady stream of cash flow come in that'll support you. 
Awesome. I love that. It's great what you've created. And I also love that you've got goals moving into the future and not not trying to go for that again, sitting on the beach, because anytime you talk to somebody who has done that, who has retired and maybe their 20s or their 30s or shoot, even their 40s, they just get bored. They just say, hey, I need go something to go do. And you're you're already thinking about that, giving yourself the next challenge. So I love that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's go. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Probably starting hiring people. That was that was the first. The, the, I mean, there have been deals that have been incredibly good and I mm-hmm. love them all. But to take it to the next level, I think starting the hiring was the best investment. Nice. Getting more of your time back and time being our most finite resource, right? So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? It was probably I think my third uh, deal ever. I ended up breaking even on deal, so thank God did okay there. But I had a contractor that that screwed me out of I think fifty thousand bucks, and I was I was wire I was like I don't know twenty one years old or something. I, I I trusted this guy and I'd wire him money early because he said that you know project was going over budget and he needed money and basically paid him the whole scope of work and then he walked off the job and did about half of it and the half he did was all wrong. So about a $50,000 goose egg there. I'm sure I've lost more money than that on other stuff, but but that one stands out as as a learning lesson. So uh, vet your contractors, uh, make sure they're doing the the work and do never ever under any circumstances pay them before the work is done. Wow, tough lesson to learn there, but at least you broke even on that one. It took your lesson away from it. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I think really thinking of everything in terms of supply and demand, like a lot of people will say, oh, we're in a recession, like real estate's going to go down. And they may be right, but like really think whenever someone makes a macro prediction, really just go back and think what's supply and what's the demand? Because at the end of the day, those are the two things that determine price. And a lot of a lot of stuff you read and see is is noise. Unless it, it directly affects the supply, directly affects demand. I think it's it's noise. So yeah, just basically bringing every single you know business problem or a future prediction and, and breaking it down super simply like that. Nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, teaching us all about your journey as a Burr investor, getting yourself up to 150 plus doors, and then into the future 200. 250 rather, and uh, buying small businesses. So much going on. Love to hear it. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. You can check out our new redesigned website, <laughs> cooperacq.com. That's C-O-O-P-E-R-A-C-Q.com. And my email is ag at cooperacq.com and look forward to connecting. 
Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time because I see your reviews. I see what you have to say. And I see that you're engaging with the content and escaping of the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to share the show with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.